0: Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian.
1: Welcome to another Dietitian Connection podcast episode. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the Director and Founder of Dietitian Connection and it's my absolute pleasure to have Professor Claire Collins joining us today. Claire is just a guru to me in terms of research and I can't wait to talk to her about how she manages it all and fits it all in. For those of you who don't know Claire, um, Professor Collins is an NHMRC Senior Research Fellow, Director of Research for the School of Health Sciences at the Faculty of Health and Medicine at the University of Newcastle here in Australia. Claire leads the largest team of research dietitians internationally in developing food and nutrition e-health tools, programs, and evaluating the impact on eating patterns and diet-related health across key life stages and chronic disease conditions. Claire has published over 350 manuscripts and supervised 28 higher degree research candidates to completion. As I said, I don't know how she does it. Professor Collins is a fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences, a fellow of the Nutrition Society of Australia, and fellow of the Dietitians Australia. In 2018, she was awarded the DAA President's Award for Innovation in honour of the memory of Josephine Rogers, and in 2017, the Hunter Medical Research Institute Researcher of the Year. Professor Collins is a sought-after media commentator. She's a regular guest of Dr. Carl on Triple J Science Hour, and she's presented for ABC Catalyst. Claire also co-created the massive open online course, The Science of Weight Loss, Dispelling Diet Myths which has been completed by an amazing number of 57,000 people across 180 countries. Wow. Professor Collins is the most read Australian author for The Conversation with over 80 articles and 9.5 million readers and I really just can't wait to chat to her about how she manages to do all of this. So thanks so much for joining us today, Claire. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure and I'm looking forward to talking to you.
1: So take me back. Why did you decide to become a dietitian?
2: Yeah, so long ago. Well, I think I was 13 when I first came across the word dietitian. And in my day back in the 70s, there was no such thing as career advice. But we had a lovely teacher who took it on himself to give us career advice. And I can still remember him standing out the front going, girls, fold your page in half. And on the left side, I want you to list the subjects you're best at. And on the right side, write down what you love the most. And so for me, it was science on the left and home science on the right. And then he said, now take your list up to the library to the A to Z Book of Careers and come back when you've found something that embodies them both. And for me, I only got to D for dietitian, back to the classroom. And I went home and told mum, I'm going to be a dietitian, but there's no course in Queensland. So I'm going to do a science degree and then I'm going to go to Sydney University. And um, little did I know, you know, what the chance or the probability of that happening, but long and short, that's exactly what happened. Mm. And, and um, you know, and then it begins really once you enter the profession mm. of dietetics, whereas when you're an undergraduate, you think that's the end. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Feet up on the desk.
1: Yeah. How wise was he, though, like to? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think he had that sense that if, if it embodied what you loved, it wouldn't be like work. And one of the things about growing up is, you know, I was a reasonably smart kid, you know, one of nine kids in a big family, parents never been to university. But my mother didn't say I had to do all the smart subjects because I loved home science. I was supposed to be doing history and geography. I didn't like either of them. And she um, supported me to do what I loved as well, which was to stick with home science, to do home science for year 12, which meant you had to do drafting you know, as well. You had to do the cooking, the sewing and the theory. And I just loved the theory. And I was already on that mission then to being a dietitian. So, you know, I did um, chemistry, I did biology and, um, you know, so, yeah, so basically I would give that same advice to anyone. Pursue what you love and it'll, it'll come together down the track.
1: You know, I was the same as you. I loved science and I loved it. was called home economics for me. Right. But yeah, but most dietitians would say it was because of the love of food or the people connection. But, yeah, for me and it sounds like for you was really the, that combination of science and home science, yeah. Home economics. Yeah, I can yeah. still remember in this careers
2: book in the library, though, there was a, you know, I'm paraphrasing it, but it was essentially like must be good at science and want to help people improve their life by improving their their diet and mm-hmm. diets for special disease conditions and it just sounded amazing and it was a word I'd never ever heard before mm-hmm. and I remember you know making an appointment at the local hospital to go and talk to a dietitian, mm-hmm. and i um, catching the train uh, when I was in my science degree down to Sydney and talking to Stuart Trusswell. to you know is this little kid from some Hicks Town, am I doing the right subjects, Professor Trustwell? And saying, oh yes, you know, and you know, and going, what's my chances of getting into this big university that's got all this sandstone, (laughs) you know? Anyway, so um it meant, you know, that's what that's what you should do. And you know, back then, because I had decided I was going to be going to this very big university, Sydney University, I took a risk and decided, well, I'll go to a small university for my science degree where I can't get distracted from doing the sciences that I need. So I was only in the fourth year of students that were taken into Griffith University, but they had physiology and biochemistry and I'd had it from Sydney University's word, well, Professor Truswell's word, that, yes, these are the right subjects to get in. And, um, yeah, so anyway, I I absolutely loved my science degree and I think before I turned up to do dietetics I had done what he'd said and I'd read that green-covered textbook, can't remember what it was called, (laughs) back to front before I showed up.
1: And so what was it like doing the dietetics degree for you?
2: Um, I can remember it was, um, you know, there was some parts that were just wonderful and some parts that, that actually were disappointing back then. And I remember one of the things they said, this course is so full on, you cannot afford to have a job. So what I learned from that is I can't tell them then that I have to have a job or I mm. can't live.
0: Mm.
2: And, um, you know, I remember I used to ride my push bike to do tutoring Uh, at kids houses my cousins actually let me live with them but I still had to pay board Mm -hmm. and um, so I just couldn't let on and I just accepted that I'd have a year of you know earning what money I could Mm -hmm. doing the course and just passing because like I said I thought once I've got my ticket to be a dietitian well then that's it I've absolutely made it and and, you know I've achieved what I wanted to achieve Mm -hmm. and so when you've graduated what where did you go from there I needed a job. I can still remember telling Sue Ash that I'm down to my last bit of money. I must start work on Monday. And she said, hey, there's a locum going in Newcastle. Mm -hmm. So I caught the train up. I had an interview at the Marta. I got the job and uh, finished uni on the Friday. And I started work at the Monday in uh, Newcastle. And, you know, things were pretty tough. And it never occurred to me to ask anybody if I could borrow a little bit of money. But you know, I arrived there with forty dollars left, and um, thinking, "Oh yeah, woohoo! Now I'll get paid." And they said, "Oh, you just missed pay week, but don't worry, you'll get paid in three weeks' time." Ooh. You know, and it, thank God for um, the nurses' home where the rent came out if you pay, <laughs> and that they had um, the nuns at the Marta gave you scones for morning tea. There was a supermarket down the road, and I think I remember buying a bag of rolled oats and a giant cauliflower. And you could get these meal books that gave you a three-course dinner and I could afford to have one every second day of those and I think I just ate baked beans the rest of the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I did it. I didn't even think yeah. I worked out how to survive. Yeah. And um, I was just in seventh heaven actually having a job and, you know, it's like when you first start working, it's all learning and you're seeing the, yeah. the live cases and managing the patients and it was just wonderful. It's a wonderful yeah.
1: place for a first yeah. job. I was born in that hospital. Um, oh, so... born smarter at the martyr. <laughs> <laughs> actually at Newcastle. Um, so what was that first job like for you?
2: Yeah, like I said, it was, really, it was really wonderful. And I worked there for two years and two months before I then tra- decided to go travelling overseas. And, um, you know, you learnt a lot. remember that the nuns at that hospital, they were actually very kind people and very nurturing. We had a special diet kitchen. And um, I can remember that the staff in that kitchen, because it was quite a small hospital, you could go to them with the needs for any particular patient. And when you told them the patient's story, if it wasn't on the menu, they would create something. Now it was a cook fresh system. So I know you can't do it that way and it probably was not cost effective at all. But um, the nun who was in charge of the catering, she would make the cooks do a ward round after every meal. Mm And uh, so there was a big sense of pride amongst the staff in terms of whether the patients enjoyed, enjoyed their meals, whether anything was wasted or not. So like I said, there was a lot of learning and a lot of learning with the food service side in that. And, um, you know, I valued that it, w- that it did have kind of that small community feeling. And the other thing I really valued in Newcastle in particular was there was a very strong dietetic community. Mind you, there was only about 30 dietitians, which I thought was a lot back mm-hmm. then. And, um, as a newbie, you were brought into the local branch and you were given a job, and we didn't question what those older dietitians told us to do. <laughs> I think I was treasurer, or maybe I was the minute secretary or well whatever they asked us to do,
1: that was what what we mm. did and so you got a lot of mentoring from them yeah. as well. I miss those days of where you knew everyone, you know we're so such a large profession now you don't know everyone anymore.
2: Uh, but, even here mm, in the hunter, mm, the last mm. professional. Um, network meeting I went to here there was like 150 and you know mm. their meetings tend to include private practice as well as um, hospital as well as university so mm. yeah there's a big community just mm. right here here in Newcastle still. So you started
1: in Newcastle and you're back in Newcastle. Um, yeah yeah. Any yeah, um, highlights in between? Never gonna leave Newcastle. <laughs> yeah. Well I did think it was a, a small
2: place even though I was here and I probably was missing Queensland but I met my husband here and my goal had always been to go travelling, you know, because it was so expensive to go overseas. Everybody put their worldly possessions into a backpack and took off till they ran out of money. Mm-hmm. So that was what we did, and we travelled around the world. And I started my trip in 1984, going to the International Congress of mm-hmm. Dietetics in Toronto. Cool. And. Not realizing there, I met fabulous dietitians all staying in the cheap accommodation mm-hmm. and uh, in the backpacker section of the accommodation. And so I actually ended up visiting them in France, Germany, and uh, and in Denmark. And that that was really really wonderful at, at that time. But uh, eventually, you know, ran ran out of money, and I came back to work at Royal Brisbane Hospital.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, you know, and that was a that was great to then work in a really large hospital where the dietitian in the charge at that time pushed people into like breaking new ground. And so the dietitians had a very good reputation there and I worked in the cancer, head and neck cancer unit and uh, we worked with Queensland um, Cancer Services to do staff education, uh, to change the food service for snacks and supplements for the wards Mm And um, yeah, so it was really an exciting time. But yeah. deep down, my heart was in paediatrics mm-hmm. and uh, my husband hadn't been able to get a full time job. So we ended up coming back to Newcastle for me to become a paediatric dietitian, yeah. part research dietitian and uh, and him able to get, to get his um, business underway here. And, you know, it's such a fabulous lifestyle in Newcastle. That's, that's also why we've never left, you know the lake, the ocean, and uh, not very much commuting. So it's Mm. it's been really wonderful. Mm. We've thrived as has our family thrived here. I still miss Queensland. I I know. I still miss that (laughs) ocean temperature.
1: (laughs) Especially around state of origin time, but we won't talk about that. Um, (laughs) So you talked about research there. What made you then to decide to go on and do a PhD? Well,
2: it's a wonder that I did because when I was the research dietitian, I actually decided I hated research. Yeah. But what I, what I decided was that I hated doing other people's research project. So I remember the consultant, um, you know, tossing me a stats book and said, "Oh, you're a smart girl. you work out how to do the stats on my project." And me just like panicking, going, <laughs> "No, I learned by people showing me, not reading a book and figuring out how to do stats." So, yeah. but I was interested in the project, so. I thought I will never do research again unless it's my research and I know what's happening. But, you know, the, the years, the next bunch of years flew by because I had um, three kids, I worked part-time, I did locums for my friend who was in private practice having her children. We, we sort of, you know, juggled that and I could go and work more hours for her so that she could keep her business going. And um, I, And it was at that time in 1989 I did my first ever media training and I can remember having this conversation with my husband when I actually told him I wanted to sign up for this DAA media training day in Sydney, and which was a big deal because we had two little kids and it was a bit of a rigmarole. How could I get to Sydney for a mm-hmm. day? And he said, why did you want to do that? And I said, I've actually got this burning passion to write about nutrition. And he, he was flabbergasted. But I'd kept it a secret because, like, what if I can't do it? You know, what dietitians are like, what if we fail? Mm. Anyway, so I went and did that course and they said, if you want to work in the media, you have to be proactive. You have to contact people. So I came back to Newcastle and I, you know, snail mail, wrote the local television station, the ABC and the local newspaper. And the long and short of it is, you know, from then on, I actually worked with them and I was really surprised to get to actually get a reception. and um, And most... The Herald used to pay me twenty dollars an article, actually. But uh, the radio and the and the television, of course, are free. And that'd probably be one of my messages: if if you feel like you want to communicate with the media, it's mostly not paid, but it's it's something that the public need the public need from us. And I think that was kind of the element that I thrived on, and I loved writing for the Newcastle Herald. And if I ever met anybody who commented on an article. I'd always ask them, what did you find most valuable out of that? Mm. Because I wanted to know what people wanted to know, Mm. and that would be one of my messages. What do people need from you when you see a nutrition science article and you've got to make that come alive and be meaningful for them? Mm. So it takes a long time, but make a start
1: with the writing and just hone hone your skills. So. Obviously you were successful then in, you know, pitching to journalists and what do you think it was about you or your style that journalists kept coming back to you for these stories?
2: Um, Well, I I think of myself as a translator. Like when you're a clinical dietitian, especially if you're attached to a specialty clinic that has a consultant, you're always translating. Like how many times have the patient said, "What, what did they say? Or what does that mean? And I think I could see that people don't necessarily understand the medical speak and they certainly don't understand the science speak, but they would like to. So I think that's what it was like realizing that you've got to break it down. So when there's an article on, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome, what does that mean for the patient? What, what do they actually have to do? And also, um, how can you explain that in simple terms? So I, I think that's what value I bring to journalists is I can interpret science for them in a way that they can understand and a way that they can relay to their audience, or I can do it myself mm. when I'm when I'm writing. Mm.
1: So you are, I think, the most well read or one of the most well-read authors on the conversation.
2: <laughs> yeah, that that's I'm so excited about that. I've cranked over 90 articles now and 10 million readers. I was the first Australian author to get to 10 million readers mm-hmm. worldwide. And um, I think it's like it's a passion for me now. Like I accept now that writing is actually my hobby, one of my hobbies. And um, I hope that I can, I can do it for a long, long time to come because I really do enjoy, enjoy that. And also the art of writing I enjoy. And, um, you know, we have some of our research studies have their own websites and things. and I enjoy trying to help some of the young ones in writing. Like I have a few things. I really hate the use of the word should, for example, because Mm -hmm. I kind of see us as the purveyor of the information, translating the information. So it's people don't have to do what we say, but I think if we present the information and the options, they could do this or they might not, or Mm -hmm. they could do something else. So I think if you were able to, present the information, and they can use it or not. I really don't like it. I think you keep Mm -hmm. should for when you, you know, you should not run across Mm -hmm. the road without looking.
1: Mm. But we shouldn't use that as our go-to word. So how can dietitians be more active on that platform, do you think?
2: Well, the conversation's a little bit unusual in that it um, seeks out academic writers. Mm -hmm. So I've written some articles with my PhD students. They'll allow PhD candidates to be Mm -hmm. involved in articles if a senior academic Mm -hmm. is on it as well. Mm -hmm. So that's the main way if you work for an academic institution. You go to the button that says Pitch a Story Mm -hmm. and they have guidelines how to write a pitch. So, so that's the key thing, I think. And you know, I think if you've got a topic in mind, thinking about what's the take-home messages for the readers mm-hmm. is a really important aspect mm. of that. Any other tips for pitching? For pitching, um, is it if you pitched or... a no, no. no. The mm-hmm. headline is is always the editor's prerogative. Oh,
1: okay, okay. okay. <laughs>
2: but I still I pitch my headlines, mm-hmm. and occasionally we Don't might make it <laughs> wrestle we might re- wrestle with them but um the final say is theirs and i know i did have one recently go but i really really want it to be this and they mm-hmm. explained why it it could be a version of that mm. and uh, and you have to accept that that's the editor's experience isn't it you know they mm-hmm. they're, they're trained in in mm. that side of it so you've mm-hmm. got to accept theirs but i did have one funny story and that was I think I was one of the first authors on the conversation to use a list, you know, five reasons for doing this. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the comments, somebody went, oh, I cannot believe that the conversation has degraded itself by allowing someone to publish a list. So I normally like don't bite and hold back, but I just couldn't resist on this one. <laughs> so I replied to them, oh, thank you for that comment. Here's four reasons why I love lists. <laughs> <laughs> and... um yeah and so you know lots of people write lists i mean that's been in other media platforms a lot of lists but i think it is easier with your take homes yeah. if you've got you know four reasons why they right. might do this or five foods that do this that or the other
1: right And in terms of young dietitians getting into the media like any tips on getting that first media yeah, do as
2: much question? do as much training as you can like i've actually done lots of media training over the over the years And a lot of it was through DAA. I was a spokesperson for 20 years. Mm -hmm. But people don't realise that DAA actually has a list of people who are willing to talk on specialty topics. Mm. So if you are only interested in talking on, like, if you were only interested in talking on intensive care nutrition, for example, you would have plenty of work lately, or immune function. And they also like to have a list of people who are willing to talk to student journalists. Mm. Now, they're tomorrow's journalists. And you know, once upon a time, I would talk to them as well, but I just don't have have time anymore. So DAA is always on the lookout and can add your name to that. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, you don't get paid for talking to journalists. It's always at inconvenient times. Journalists—the only people who have thicker skins than journalists are researchers. <laughs> and uh, because you know, they say we'll call you at this time, and they don't, and then they don't ring you back or whatever. But you know, water off a duck's back. It's it's. It's um, they're on timelines always as well. So I think do as much professional development and as much understanding about their world, so that you can give them what they what they need. Yeah. They're yeah. always on deadlines, and that's probably yeah. the first question I always ask is what's your deadline? Yeah. Because if you can buy a little bit of time to prepare your thoughts, then that makes it that makes it much easier. You can yeah. do a shorter, sharper interview.
1: Yeah. And how much do you think having a PhD has helped you either in your role as a media spokesperson or in the um, in the journals coming to you because you do have that? Uh, I think it's record.
2: helped I think it's helped enormously. Like one thing for me is I do have a really deep understanding of research. And so for the conversation, I will do their they're almost like a live journal club. You know, when if their story seems to get a disproportionate amount of media attention and they're unsure of the science, they actually bust them down, break them down on the conversation and that's exactly what it's like doing a journal club. So you can critique them, you can critique the methods, so I think it's helpful for people who are writing those kinds of articles and um, so the more you understand the evidence, the more you are able to explain it to other people. The other thing is in my team we do lots of systematic reviews we've done over 50 in the last five years and so we have a good a systematic review gives you a good sense of what the weaknesses are across studies and what the key messages are across studies so mm-hmm. you know being able to understand study design one thing I see people mix up a lot is an observational study which is really just like a photograph, if you think about it. If, you're, if you've yeah. done a big survey of everyone at one point in time, mm-hmm. you can say who's standing next to who, mm-hmm. but you can't say why they're standing next to each other in a photograph, mm-hmm. whereas an experiment or a study where you follow that group over time, which is called a cohort study, if you do any of those other designs, you can make different sorts of mm-hmm. claims mm-hmm. About, the, about the research. And so, you know, having, even if you're not a researcher, doing professional development about research methods I think is really mm. helpful in understanding of the literature. Mm-hmm.
1: So what was your PhD on Claire and what Yeah you so why did I to, end up yeah, doing yeah, a yeah. PhD when yeah. I went oh god I hate, I hate this research, research stuff.
2: Yeah. Um, well I think I had a midlife crisis <laughs> early. <laughs> so when I was about 30 um, you know all the they changed all the Postgraduate courses to undergraduate courses, Mm -hmm. but they were but you were grad or no, you could get a master's. So you got a Mm -hmm. four year degree or a master's, Mm -hmm. and I felt like my qualifications were inadequate. Mm -hmm. So that thought of trying to do a master's upgrade, which some of them were offering, the unis were offering, I thought about that, and then when I looked at what the research project was, I thought, well, I'm not actually really going to come out with much extra skills for just doing a six month project. And I was working in the cystic fibrosis clinic in the MARTA. I was the sole dietitian to that clinic. And my boss, the respiratory paediatrician, had done a PhD, as had the gastroenterologist, the paediatric gastroenterologist. You know, it, it was a pretty sad condition at those times. Life expectancy mm-hmm. when I started was like 12 to 15. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to wonder, like, does it really matter what I do here? Mm-hmm. And uh and if I can't prove that I can make a difference, oh, I think I'll need to do something else. And that's what they said. Well, why don't you do research? You can answer that question. And then that was absolutely it. So empowering to discover that the role of the dietitian really, really mattered and made a difference to the nutritional status. One of my proudest papers was that one of the papers in my PhD where I published the nutritional status of the cohort and I had mapped it every four years. And I'd shown how the group who'd been in the care of the clinic from birth since the uh, clinic was established in Newcastle were growing much better than the old Mm. cohort and, in fact, had a normal distribution of growth and were growing the best of any published data in the world. Mm. And uh, I can remember um, I had this line in the conclusion that says, therefore... A dietician essentially is the best thing since sliced bread <laughs> and must be a member of the clinic and, and uh, the gastroenterologist Ted said to me, he said, you know, you actually haven't proved that point exactly. <laughs> and I said, I know, Ted, can we make the reviewers make me take that out? <laughs> and they never did. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so, so that was really exciting. But, you know, inventing a new method for doing a gastric emptying test in kids where the research said the way you do gastric emptying in research studies is to get a chicken, a live chicken, inoculate it with some radioactive technetium, harvest the liver and then whack it in liver stew and get them to eat it. And so I came up with a method by talking to the radiologist that we could get that technetium to stick to egg white and then I experimented not with the technetium part but I experimented with how much egg white. Could I hide a quarter of an egg? an egg white into a pancake without a kid noticing it. Mm -hmm. And I did that bit on my kids and then came up with a method which became their test meal Mm -hmm. in the hospital for gastric emptying. And the other really powerful thing for me was in that study was so I created this method for the test meal prior to studying emptying times in their stomach and I had weighed records and I knew kids' growth and their usual dietary intake. And what I noticed was that some kids couldn't finish the test meal And um, But they had to finish a certain amount to get enough of a label Mm -hmm. to be traced Mm -hmm. and it ended up that the kids who couldn't eat a pancake in 15 minutes had lower, they did have slower emptying times but we didn't even have to do the test because Mm -hmm. they had worse energy Mm -hmm. intakes. So I learned to listen to parents Mm. because the parents who said, oh, they're so slow, and then there was other literature at the time where we could more which supported we could more confidently say, okay, most food's eaten in 20 minutes, put the oven bell on, clear it away after that. You can make yeah. up the extra kilojoules by energy-dense snacks. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I saw the power between, um, like, yeah, listening to the patients, mm-hmm. doing the research and having the research evidence to back up some mm-hmm. of those clinical strategies and then seeing the results with a group of children mm-hmm. who are growing well considering they had a malabsorptive mm-hmm. infectious dis- you know, disease where infection is a big component. Mm-hmm. Truly really the basis of a good researcher
1: observing. Mm,
2: yeah, yeah. And anyway, and then the long and short after that was um, in the, and those times, clinicians didn't do much research, especially dietitians. So they mm. said, well, we can't give you a research job. You can keep working in the clinic, but you'll have to go to the university if you want to do research. So I just balanced. I juggled the two. I still did my writing. So I had all these little under-the-radar jobs Mm. and i realized on reflection that that actually allowed me to stay under the radar and get a long way before you know really before i had to probably um take on more of the leadership roles and uh, i was able to get through a lot of progress before it was then right okay well now you've got to do this and this and this
1: Mm. so you've done a lot in research since then and you're, if not the most, one of the most prolific research dietitians I know probably in Australia and around the world, like on every statistic, so grant dollars, publications, research students. How do you do it?
2: Um, I'm pretty well organised. You must and be. Yeah, and the other thing is that I look at the students as my future colleagues mm-hmm. and, um, and also I, I think if there are opportunities, you've got to grab them and run. So I always say to the team, if the door opens, just sprint, get your shoulder in and get through before that door closes, because when it closes, you don't know how long. And I've seen people miss opportunities because they go, oh, we'll do it next year. Mm -hmm. And it is effort to stay up and finish writing a grant or to get that student to apply for their fellowship or, or, or whatever. But So many times I've seen, then somebody decides, "Oh well, next year will be the right time." And now that opportunity's gone, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's kind of happened with research higher degree candidates because it was. We had a number of years where it was it was fairly easy to get PhD scholarships, and now it is very hard. Really, so we're still getting them, but it's not easy as easy as it was to get them. So the landscape in academia certainly changes. And now at the moment, it's going to be a very lean time in research grants. So I would say the main thing is, yeah, just make yourself make yourself do it. And then I think the other key thing is being resilient because you get way, you, you don't get more than what you do get. You know, like if you get one out of 10, then you're bang on average for success rates. But, mm. you know, I have many grants where, it's the fifth time I apply for them. When I got my mm. first NHMRC fellowship in 2010, that was when I went full-time to the university. Um, that was the fourth time I'd applied for that. And, um, you know, so amongst my team, we're all pretty resilient like that. hurts mm. like hell when you don't get stuck. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I always say, you're allowed to cry yourself to sleep, <laughs> but it's what happens the next day. Yes, you've got to you know, pick and, yourself up. Yeah, my last big rejection was um I whipped through that whole, you know, like anger, grief, whatever mm-hmm. and only took two hours. So I've got <laughs> it's getting faster. <laughs> it's getting getting faster. But it does still hurt and it yeah. it should hurt because you put your mm-hmm. heart and soul yeah. into these things. Mm-hmm. So but you know, don't give up. Just keep on trying. And um, you know, that that's the best you the best you can do. And I think the other thing too is seeking feedback from people. Like we read each other's applications and within the university they have better systems now than they used to for finding people to review Mm -hmm.
1: review grants and things like that Mm -hmm. so you've got such a great team around you how do you keep everyone sort of motivated and inspired and
2: well i think we're all excited by the science and you know and there's so much fun and now because a lot of what we do is technology based Mm -hmm. it's um seeing people engage with it or seeing some of those things become live is Just absolutely fabulous. I think we've just hit half a million people now who've done the healthy eating quiz. Um, No money, no time. have a multi-year partnership with um, the NIB Foundation to create a program for 18 to 24-year-olds. And this is a living life program. We have a research platform attached to it, but it's out out there for the community. And when the statistics, um, you know, of the engagements, they're higher than what we predicted. It's really satisfying. Mm. It's, it now comes up number one on Google,
1: mm.
2: and um, to see people using it mm-hmm. is is really exciting. And I kind mm. of feel, especially with no money, no time, it's kind of like it brings all of the different experience I've had in my career together. So using all the expertise from media work and writing, um, the technology component the research evidence from other other studies we've done all there in a usable way for uh, young adults mind you anyone can use it but the language is is tailored to people who've got no money no time and a limited
1: kitchen ability but actually are interested in health and nutrition so you talked about technology there i think that's definitely the way of the future how did you come to realize that technology was the place we needed to be and how do you think dietitians can get more involved in technology? Well my interest in technology goes way back and this is you know I was
2: telling you that I worked mostly in cystic fibrosis so when I came to work at the university I thought that's a pretty small population in the Hunter. It would be good for me to learn how to work with big numbers so I was able to get a study leave way back in 2004 to go and work on the Australian Longitudinal Study of Women's Health. Which was based in Newcastle at that time, and it's actually co based at Queensland University. And um, that was, oh wow, you know, like 10,000 women in three different age cohorts. And I saw that there was a gap for what's called a diet quality score. So that researchers, out, particularly outside of nutrition, needed a way of scoring a diet on a continuous scale but with one variable mm-hmm. and I was interested in one that a dietitian could use in the clinic because mm-hmm. you know you observe that patients spend a lot of time sitting around so I came up with this one the Australian recommended food score and incidentally have just published uh, um, a paper or well actually it's still under review showing that the diet quality score predicts healthcare costs over 15 years so people who have a low variety of healthy foods that are recommended in the Australian dietary guidelines, it ends up costing more money mm-hmm. through through Medicare and more consults. Anyway, when I was giving the talk, what did you do in your study leaf? But I, oh, I may as well write this score out on a paper and let people create their own score while I'm talking. So I'm telling them my results and they're all going, Oh God, I got this score. Hey, I beat you, I got this. And they go, hey, it's supposed to be listening to me. So mm-hmm. I thought, wow, what if I could put that score in a way that people could get their results automatically and then if I use technology, you could get feedback. So I so worked with our innovation, our commercialization team to create the Healthy Eating Quiz score mm-hmm. online and, uh, and now, you know, version four is the version that's yeah. out there and yeah. um, it's proved to be really popular. But I think why I like technology is it can speed up some of the boring bits of what we do. I think in terms of value for money, we don't have time to be people to be paying for a dietary assessment. Look at all the tools that are out there. You know, you can do it on your on your smartphone or you can, you know, you can do it on all your different Fitbits and things like that. Mm-hmm. So as dietitians, people like the counselling they like that we're interested in personalizing and able to personalize their medical nutrition mm-hmm. therapy. So the only way we can get more time for that is to use technology to systematize and automate some of those boring bits so that you can jump straight into the behavioral counseling, you know, the goal setting, the addressing the barriers, all of those elements. And the other really important aspect of that, they can be used in, in our telehealth. Conference consultations so um, you know we worked with DAA recently to help create that um, telehealth position paper that's that's now out and you know it's here to stay you know that's one thing that COVID has done is it's sped up the um, the recognition of telehealth as a valuable as a valuable service but the responsibility is now on us to prove
1: it and to demonstrate results
2: for patients from using it
1: Mm. So I'm astounded by your breadth of knowledge as well. So not only are you you're across like nutrition and dietetics and food, but you're also now in technology and probably in economics and marketing and psychology. How do you stay up to date and keep abreast of, you know, where well, the world's moving? Well, it's about having the and, team. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: It's about having the team, isn't it? And you can't yeah. do all that yourself. Yeah. I never do my own stats anymore and we've got mm-hmm. people in the team who have that expertise and then, you know, at our Medical Research Institute, we have the Health Economics Unit. In my university, we're collaborating with the um, people in computer science and, you know, have shared PhDs between my team and their team. So, you know, you don't have to do it all. You It's about making the connections and being part of the team. And I think that's a phenomenon that's recognised in science, that you can't be a sole scientist. You've got to be able to work across Disciplines, and it actually makes it heaps more fun, anyway. it's mm-hmm. everybody brings their own expertise, and mm-hmm. generally, the collective idea, the group idea, is way, mm-hmm. way better mm-hmm. than than just the sole, the sole idea.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, you have covered so many different research areas. Do you have a favourite, or the one that you're most proud of? Well.
2: I have to go back to what I did in my PhD. Yeah. I'm actually really proud of that yeah. because at the time when I started my PhD, there was almost nobody in the world who'd done research on nutrition in cystic fibrosis. Yeah. But um, Helen Truby, who's a good friend of mine and is now a professor up there at Queensland University, we both started our PhDs in cystic fibrosis about the same time yeah. and we met on telephone, by telephone. Yeah, That's wow. how you talk to people in those <laughs> days. And so Helen had this great idea that we should ask DAA if we could have a national interest group Mm -hmm. because there was only like five of us in Australia Mm -hmm. who were attached to clinics. Mm -hmm. And so DAA, you know, auspiced that we could be a national interest group at a time when everything was state-based. And they even let us, if we didn't tell anybody, we were allowed to bring in the sole cystic fibrosis dietitian from New Zealand <laughs> <laughs> as well. It wasn't official, but she was, she was in as well. And so then Helen and I stayed involved and we contributed to pancreatic enzyme replacement guidelines, then nutrition guidelines, then we had a whole swathe of really enthusiastic young dietitians who are interested in cystic fibrosis. Australia's produced the most research high degrees in cystic fibrosis nutrition in the world helen and i mentored them to create the endorsed um, nutrition guidelines that were released in 2017 and i know from the respiratory physicians that inspired them for the whole of australia and new zealand mm. um, medical guidelines when mm. they saw how well organized the dietitians had been so yeah. i think really that's what i most most proud of. Mm. And then after that, I'm really proud of just keeping my head down and growing an amazing team of mm. research, yeah, passionate incredible. politicians. And my ambition is that they will shove me out of the way and
1: then I retire. <laughs> they won't let you, I don't think. And you wouldn't well, want to.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I will eventually hope, hope to be an emeritus professor, which means basically, you, you know, you, you hang around a mentor, but you're not not leading it but you know it's it's not too far off really because the biggest challenge is when you've got um, a family you know Mm -hmm. like I've seen people and this was me as well you know I I thought if I got to be in charge of a dietetic department I would be exceeding my own expectations really I had no dream or vision at that stage that being in research and being a research leader was even possible I mean, who did that in our profession anyway? There was mm-hmm. there wasn't that many role role models, and so now I hope I've grown a group whose ambition is even bigger than mine, mm-hmm. and so that Newcastle University will be well known for nutrition research internationally, mm-hmm. and I think think it already is. And I was going to
1: say, I think you've already achieved that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you know, and then I I know you were interested to know whether or not I had any mentors. Yes. And so I absolutely have to shout out to Sandra.
1: I professor. was hoping you would mention her because she's mine as well, as you know. Yeah.
2: yeah, Professor Sandra Capra. I was close to leaving the university, I think, and then they said, um, you know, Sandra was interested in the position. So, and I know her and Linda were made professor about the same time, but I can remember telling our head of faculty, you know, they advertised it as an associate professor. And I said, you know, why would anybody come into state to stay at the same level and they went, oh, right. And um, they got Sandra down for the interview and she has been a fabulous mentor and supporter of dietitians and I think, you know, like allow allow those flower buds to open. (laughs) She's the watering can and um, backing you up and, you know, that's a really, really important role. And then I've had another wonderful, my two PhD supervisors, you know, who challenged me out of my comfort zone when I went, dietitians don't do research And they went, you know, you can do research, give it a go. And then I have another mentor here, um, Emeritus Professor Marie Gleeson. She was the head of Hunter Medical Research. She was head of the Office of Medical Research for New South Wales at one stage. And I find really helpful when there's, you know, things that you just need that high level of insight um, about what's happening or she's been a wonderful supporter as well.
1: And what is it about all of them, do you think, or what would you say to younger dietitians? Because I I find that um, some don't actually have mentors and I I like to have as many as possible and in as many areas as possible. Can you talk about what they've given to you or the traits they've got?
2: Well, I I do think it's really important to find a mentor and, you know, there should be a way of finding it because you look at DAA, we're one of the few professions that start off with the provisional program and I think... um, what what mentors can give you is, like I said, that sage advice from further down the road and um, perhaps save you time or making decisions or, you know, as you, as you move up the food chain, you, it's an environment that you don't understand or you haven't been in. And so having somebody like carrying that shining torch who's, who's farther, further ahead is really invaluable. And I would say like from the people that that I mentor and have mentored, often you just have no knowledge of of they have no knowledge of what lies ahead so it's really really valuable but there's another point i want to touch on in that and that's um it's sponsorship so it's it's not i don't think it's good enough to only have a mentor it's important to have a sponsor and both marie and sandra have been helpful in that way in that when you're seeking specific opportunities and they know how they know that you need those. They can put your name forward. Mm. And women don't get sponsoring mm. as often as males. Mm. So, you know, find or mentor, talk to people, ask people who could help you. Don't expect to do it all alone. And mm. that's, that's definitely um,
1: something that can, that can help you with your career development. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by sponsoring? I know what you mean, but I don't think it's a commonly used phrase. And I think well, we need uh, to be better man- at it. A mentor can give you the advice, Mm -hmm. but a sponsor can make it happen.
2: So I remember when at one particular time I had a couple of PhD students and what we were able to do in the PhD really depended on funding. And so she was able to put our projects forward to people who she was aware of may um, actually contribute funds to the actual projects. And that was absolutely linchpin for two of the projects in terms of what we were able to do. Mm -hmm or they put your name forward for a committee because they know you need this sort of leadership opportunity or that sort of leadership opportunity. So if you've talked to someone then about that sponsoring and together you've worked out the sorts of opportunities you need to develop your leadership skills, then it's really on you to take those when they come along, you know, not going, oh, no, I need to wash my hair or whatever. (laughs) So, you know, but being aware of what that sponsorship is, it's an opportunity gifted to you by virtue of your mentor, mm-hmm. spon- I think a sponsor is always always in some sort of mentoring role as well. Mm-hmm. So, and it's for a purpose, really. You know, whether yeah. it's to yeah achieve a project or develop specific yeah. skills.
1: Yeah, so they can really open the door for you and introduce you yeah. to people as well. Yeah, that's right. I'd also like to touch on. I know you know, you've done so much volunteer work for Dietitians Australia, um, previously Dietitians Association of Australia. And again, I find this is something that our younger dietitians don't necessarily see the value in, in being part of that dietetic profession. Can you share your thoughts on how that's helped you over your career? Well,
2: you know, I think we're stronger together and I know that you think that too. Mm-hmm. And if you stick together, you can make a bigger impact for the collective good. So that's why I continue to support Dietitians Australia. It's the only thing I've ever wanted to be. You can reinvent yourself and have multiple careers within the, within the one profession, mm-hmm. but I think our profession does have to grow and evolve and it'll, it's better to do that with everybody on board from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And that's why when I talk about DAA, I always like to remind people that we're talking about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it's not, hey, you over there, DAA, go and do something for me. It's what can you do for DAA? Because that's what makes our profession grow and develop. Mm -hmm. I think when I entered the profession, there was like 200 and something dietitians. What are we now? Seven and a half thousand. Mm -hmm. That's a very strong, powerful voice. So I think if we get behind our our president, our CEO, our board, and make it what we can be. My introduction to the profession was here in Newcastle when we did have sub-branches in those days, and like I said, we did what we were asked to do, and I've always done what DAA have asked me to or volunteered, and I do think that that's what makes it stronger. In terms of the media Like everyone knows that the word dietitian is a pretty horrible word, Mm -hmm. but that's why if we stick to that term APD, and why I try to use it in the media, like so that people can just go, oh APD, you know, like you go, oh CPD or whatever the the letter is for the chartered accountants, you know, Mm -hmm. that people can just go, oh yeah, like Mm -hmm. GP or APD. So I I think it's really important we're stronger if we stick together and have a united voice, and you know. I'm not the first person to say to say this, and many dietitians say this: is we're not each other's competition. The vicious competition is outside the gate, so we shouldn't be so internal, navel gazing. Oh, she said this, or he said that, or whatever. the The people who are our competition are the ones are the um, you know are the the self-styled gurus who are outside of our profession. What we have that they don't have is we have the science. And um, I think I've come to value that even more since I've been talking on Triple J actually Mm -hmm. and um, because, you know, Dr. Carl, he says, you know, you've got great science and it's, yeah, I've gone, yeah, we have got great science. So when you're talking to the public, if you can share some of the science as well as the what do you put in your shopping basket, I think it helps people see Beyond the one-liners that many of the gurus, all they can say is don't eat carbs or don't mm. eat sugar, and you know if you ask them why, um, they actually haven't got an answer because they're not really sure. Mm. So, but whereas we do have that deep science, so I would encourage people to keep using their science because that's what separates you from people without nutrition science background.
1: Mm. I think what I find with you, Claire, is that you're so giving. You're so giving of your knowledge, your expertise, and your time. Like anytime I call you, you're always there to say yes and, and support the profession. But I know you're such a busy lady. So why do you say yes? Why do you do that? And secondly, how how do you organise your life such that you can?
2: Okay. Well, it's because it's important. So mm-hmm. if it's if it's important, then I say yes. And I don't think about, can I do it or not? So I say yes, because I'm going to do it. And that means something else shuffles out down the other end. Mm-hmm. So, you know, over the years, like through the university and even the hospital and the, and through DAA, I've done lots of professional development courses. I've done all the time management courses. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that struck me in those was, did you ever do that exercise of the four quadrants? Mm-hmm. You know, what's important and what's urgent? Yep. And Stephen it was coding. really, yeah, it was really helpful to realise that, there's some um non-urgent, non-important, well you were never gonna do them anyway, but there are some things that are urgent um but are unimportant. But I think if you focus on the important and urgent, you will always get those done. And um, you know, and I, I know I'm a list creator. Some of my team they all now use all the <laughs> smart boards and tools and that, but I still like to have a list and you know, when there's three things that need to be done, then I'll keep. I'll just keep chipping away. So one of the things that helps me when I've got a lot of things coming out with de- with deadlines mm-hmm. is that I find if I can start it, I don't plan to finish it. I just plan to scope it that I can come back and do that faster when I have got the time. And the other thing I've gotten better at is I go, okay, I've got this amount of time. I have to do the best job I can do in, in this time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those things are going to be read by other people as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Or if you come back, put it away, come back and read it later, you'll actually make it, mm. make it better. So I think that and, you know, I don't waste time and the writing part is my hobby but I won't give that up because it, it just feels like, a, um, you know, like, not like a luxury but like it's a pleasure to create
1: things mm-hmm. with words. Yeah, it's great when you're hobbying your career kind of mesh too.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are, the, there are other hobbies I will take up. Uh, like one of my relaxation activities mm. is is actually cooking. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> it's all very interrelated. <laughs> yeah. and, and going for bushwalks as well. But, you okay. know, like I, I actually do, lo- I do love cooking too, okay. so that that's probably helpful when you're a dietitian, isn't it? Yeah.
1: We are starting to run out of time, which I'm very sad about because um, I could talk to you for a few more hours, I think, but I did want to touch on the catalyst because you were on there recently with the How the Food Works series, you know, getting back to your love of the science of food. What was it like to um, be behind the scenes? Oh, that was just so much
2: pleasure, like talking to other science because when we love what we do and you can't imagine why anybody, everybody's not a dietitian. when you go and meet scientists who are just as passionate about saving the Pacific oysters or growing a drought resistant wheat. It's a, such a joy. And um, I think the most fun I've had in one day, not expecting to, was spending 12 hours in the SPC baked bean canning factory <laughs> down there in Shepparton. And I feel so privileged, like ABC Science have given me license to have a heap of fun mm. with scientists. And, um, and I think why they like, they like me in that role is because I can ask the sciencey questions and I'm really interested and passionate about the science as well as the practical application to people. So I think, um, yeah, I think I was, I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And I think it's, be, that's the other role they were looking for in that team is that somebody who had the nutrition science. And then, you know, as as well as my two co-hosts in that. So I hope, I hope they didn't get their budget cut and I get to do it again.
1: Yeah. And after COVID, I guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: So we are out of time, but to end with, I'd love to hear what your words of wisdom are for our younger dietitian colleagues.
2: Okay. So I think I think it's to be resilient and not give up. I know it is challenging for people with businesses at the moment with mm-hmm. coronavirus, but... Mm-hmm telehealth is is the opportunity i think many times in your life you'll come across things that seem like the end of the world but overcoming those and addressing those there's usually an opportunity in that Mm -hmm. you know you get a rejection you learn to get back up off the canvas and and um, you know seek some advice ask for some independent advice so i think um you know try and give back to your profession we are a profession that's to serve you know that's what that's That's very much I know that's very much a clinical role, but I think our role is we're so lucky to have access to this wealth of nutrition information, but sharing that with other people in whatever type of role you have is uh is is powerful and and definitely a privilege. so I think um wise to not misuse that. but you know I think at the start, don't worry if you're doing three different jobs or they're all locums. have faith that it will come together as your career evolves. And while you're still moving forward, you are still learning. And sometimes I think that, you know, even standing still, sometimes is progress, you know, because you could slip backwards. So I'd encourage people to, you know, never give up, grab the opportunities as they come. Things won't happen overnight, but if you're still gravitating towards the bigger picture, and to go and do those professional development things just because you love them, even mm-hmm. if it's not related to the job you're doing now, but love mm-hmm. that. That's what will help, you know, give you your your guiding star in your career.
0: Mm.
1: I think that's that love of lifelong learning, really.
2: Yeah, that, absolutely. That you have as well,
1: Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Claire. It has been an absolute pleasure and an absolute honour to interview you on the Dietitian Connection podcast. um, Well, thank
2: you, Marie. As you you said earlier, like I always enjoy talking to you and, um, you know, and you've grown a wonderful business and playing a really important role in our profession. So, you know, let's all get behind one another and support our profession.
1: Thanks, Claire. And as a fellow of Dietitians Australia, you know, you've given, as I said, so much to our profession and continue to do so. And it's just, a, you know, you're creating such a legacy. And I'm just so um, honoured that I, that I know you and um, get to witness what you do. I just, yeah, I think what you've done is incredible from the dietitian research landscape. Thank and, you. And beyond. So yeah, you've already achieved your dream, I believe. <laughs> yes. But we don't want you to retire anytime soon. <laughs> No, not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Claire. It was lovely to chat with you. Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. Wherever in the world you're tuning in from. If you did enjoy this podcast episode, we would really appreciate if you could leave a review for us. Leaving a review actually means the podcast gets to more dietitians and it can only elevate our profession if we work together. So please hit that review button tell us and other people what you thought about this episode another way to share your learnings from this episode and keep the conversation going is to take a screenshot of your phone screen add your message and share it on social media don't forget to tag us at dietitian connection so we can share it with our following of over thirty thousand. tell us what you learned and what future topics you'd like us to cover If you'd like to access the show notes, they are available at dietitianconnection.com forward slash podcasts. Dietitian Connection is a global community and we offer free professional development, job opportunities, resources, and connections. We're committed to bringing dietitians together so we can create more impact and elevate our profession. And you can easily become a Dietitian Connection member for free by signing up at dietitianconnection.com dot com